It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Portraits of Blue and Gray, the Biographical Civil War Podcast, Episode 2, Ulysses S. Grant, Part 1. Americans love an underdog. It's kind of part of our national folklore. We'd much rather root for the late-round draft pick that grinds his way through the minor leagues than for the blue-chip prospect first-round draft pick. We prefer the self-made man, the guy who starts his own business and makes a fortune through his own blood, sweat, and tears, to the legacy who inherits his father's business, even if the latter does great things and works just as hard. We like the guy who made his own way in life. Or at least we say we do. And you know, something else Americans like, or like to do, or at least we historically like to do, it's been a while at this point, is we like electing generals as president. And maybe that was because that's what we did with the first one, and it worked out so well. George Washington, right? He's nearly always considered one of the best ever, along with Lincoln. But even with Lincoln, there are some people, especially in the libertarian crowd, who are really down on Honest Abe for some of the constitutionally questionable actions he took during the war, like suspending habeas corpus. But before I open that can of worms, uh, I made a decision not to do an episode on Lincoln. I think there have been like 15,000 books written on him. Uh, Seriously, 15,000, which is the most of anyone not named Jesus. Everyone pretty well knows about Lincoln, I think. So when we start looking at the political background of the war, we'll be looking at the Union side uh, through Edwin Stanton and the Confederate side through Jefferson Davis. But anyway, back to generals as presidents. We elected Andrew Jackson because he took some bacon and took some beans and defeated the British at the Battle of New Orleans. Uh, It was after the War of 1812 was already over, but those are just details. William Henry Harrison also made his name in the War of 1812. Then there's Zachary Taylor. President Polk had tried to keep him out of office, but he was already too popular from his Mexican war exploits. Now, Taylor didn't last too long, though he did last a little longer than Harrison. I'm not sure whether to count Franklin Pierce. He was technically a brigadier general, but he really only got that rank due to some political connections, and he didn't really do much with it. More recently, we elected Eisenhower after World War II, and he's the last so far. Though some have joked that the presidency was a demotion for Ike after being the supreme commander of NATO. And of course, we elected the subject of today's episode, Ulysses S. Grant, one of six Civil War generals who went on to become president. That's including Andrew Johnson, who held the rank during his time as military governor of Tennessee. Considering everything Grant accomplished, what with leading the Union to victory in the Civil War and serving two terms in the White House, Grant, to me, is one of the presidents who is most easily relatable. Other than maybe a fortunate appointment to West Point 
and a political promotion when the Civil War first broke out, uh, which was not a rare thing, nothing was ever handed to Ulysses Grant. And he was no stranger to failure. He made a lot of mistakes. But he always got up, dusted himself off, and kept coming. A great quote from Grant, and he has quite a few good ones. Uh, His memoir is probably still the best presidential memoir out there. He said, quote, One of my superstitions has always been when I started to go anywhere or to do anything, not to turn back or stop until the thing intended was accomplished, unquote. The context of that was when he ran into some high water during a trip to visit his future wife, Julia. And of course, the water didn't stop him. Um, But it's pretty representative of him as a general also. So I think Grant and Lee are both pretty admirable on the whole. But I find Grant more relatable than Lee. Lee was the blue-chip first-round draft pick. I mean, he had the presidents of both the Union and the Confederacy trying to give him command. He was a legend at West Point. He was Winfield Scott's hand-picked commander. And just about everyone who saw him talks about how he just looked like a soldier, straight from central casting for a 19th-century war hero. At the beginning of the war... Grant couldn't even get people who weren't even half as important as Winfield Scott to return his calls. James McPherson describes Grant as, quote, slouchy and unsoldierlike in appearance, a man of no reputation and little promise. Shelby Foote describes how the 5'8", 135-pound Grant carried himself with a, quote, round-shouldered slouch pitching forward on his toes. He paid as scant attention to the grooming of his beard as he did to the cut and condition of his clothes. One of Grant's subordinates uh, observed of the general, in dress he was plain, even negligent. But he did take care of his horse, which was always a good one and well kept. In speech, he was quiet and reserved. Foote also notes, in an army boasting the country's ablest cursors, his strongest expletives were doggone it and by lightning. And even these were sparingly employed. Lee, of course, didn't swear much either. But the point is, nobody would have expected that this unlikely hero would be the man to take back control of the Western waterways during the Civil War. The man to capture Vicksburg, which was called the Gibraltar of the Confederacy, and the man to finally defeat Lee. Nobody really could or would have foreseen that Grant would be, as H.W. Brantz puts it, the man who saved the Union. Welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray. This is part one of our portrait of Ulysses S. Grant, which will probably end up being a four-parter. Today we will be looking at Grant's early life, pre-war army career, the tough times he went through prior to the war, and his meteoric rise to national prominence once the war began. Before we get going, I wanted to put out a call for emails. The show's email address is blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com, with the gray spelled with an E. Now, the reason I'm asking for listener emails is, first, that I'd love to hear from you, but also that I'm debating what we're going to do for our next episode or our next series. I've been considering either a look at war-era politics, focusing on Jefferson Davis and Edwin Stanton, or a series on generals who were big players at the beginning of the war, but not toward the end. Uh, For that one, we'd be looking at Stonewall Jackson and George McClellan. I expect I'll end up doing both eventually, but I wanted to see if any listeners have a preference on what they'd like to hear first. 
But for now, turning back to Grant, as it turns out, the closer you look, the more you see that Grant had many more similarities to Lee than you would initially think. Like Lee, his family had been in America since the 1600s. Matthew Grant had come across to New England with the Puritans in the 1630s, though the Grant family gradually moved west until they were in Ohio in the 1800s. Now, Ulysses Grant's father was not a Revolutionary War hero. Jesse Grant worked as a tanner. Ulysses, as his son was called, wasn't fond of his father's line of work or of being anywhere near the tannery, which is unsurprising given that he disliked the sight of blood. Jesse was good at his trade, and he had some natural instincts for business, but he wasn't formally educated. He did, however, want his son to be, uh, much like Lee's mother insisted on her boy's education. Grant's mother, Hannah Simpson, described Ulysses as a serious boy. People often think that Grant's middle initial S stands for Simpson uh, because of his mother's maiden name. Grant himself may have even said that once or twice. But the name given to him at his birth on April 27, 1822, was Hiram Ulysses Grant, after Homer's Ulysses. The S would come later and didn't really stand for anything. Ulysses spent a quiet childhood in Georgetown in southwestern Ohio. He spent some time in boarding school in Kentucky, but he wasn't all that studious. The most remarkable thing about young Ulysses Grant was his love of horses, pretty much all animals, really, and his proficiency as a rider. He could reportedly stand on one foot on a galloping horse, balancing with the bridle reins at eight years old. So the quiet, serious boy was also a bit of a daredevil. Also like Lee, Grant would carry a concern for the welfare of animals with him throughout his life. Years later, uh, during his time in the Mexican War, Grant, as he said, not wanting to leave the country without witnessing the national sport, decided to attend a bullfight. It was a decision that he came to regret. He wrote of the experience, quote, The sight to me was sickening. I could not see how human beings can enjoy the sufferings of beasts, and often of men, as they seem to do on these occasions, unquote. In 1839, Ulysses was nominated to attend West Point by United States Representative Thomas Hamer, a former friend of Jesse's before they had a falling out over politics. Apparently, Hamer was a big enough man to set aside the falling out sufficiently to make the nomination. Or maybe he saw something in Ulysses. Hamer would later write of Grant during their time in the army together in Mexico, quote, I anticipate for him a brilliant future. Lieutenant Grant is too young for command, but his capacity for future military usefulness is undoubted, unquote. But the whole West Point thing was Jesse's idea. Ulysses didn't know anything about it until after the appointment had already been secured. He was unsure if he wanted to go, but in the end, his eagerness to travel persuaded him. He spent several weeks making his way to New York, touring Philadelphia and New York City before arriving at West Point in May of 1839. Upon arrival, he found out that Hamer, or probably someone in Hamer's office, had screwed up his name on the registration. Instead of H. Ulysses Grant, he was U.S. Grant. The U.S. initials led to his nickname while at West Point, and during the early part of his military career, Sam, as in Uncle Sam. Like many other cadets, Sam struggled with homesickness during the start of his time at West Point. Uh, Mostly, it was the pretty Ohio girls that he missed. In September of his first year, he lamented in a letter to his cousin, quote, I have been here about four months and have not seen a single familiar face or spoken to a single lady. 
Incidentally, one of the best parts about studying Grant is that he was a prolific writer. In addition to his famous memoirs, Grant wrote a tremendous number of letters that have mostly been preserved. And he really was a talented, often witty writer. So there's a lot more first-person material available for Grant than for many of his contemporaries, like Lee. But despite being a good writer, Sam Grant wasn't all that great of a student, though he did well in math and art. He was more interested in reading novels by the likes of James Fenimore Cooper or Washington Irving than in studying French. And so he'd end up graduating 21st out of a class of 39, pretty much in the middle. He also wasn't a big fan of having to wear a uniform every day either, and he earned several demerits for his sloppy dress. But he was impressed by some of the prestigious uniformed men that visited the school. On Winfield Scott's visit, Grant noted, With his commanding figure, his quite colossal size and showy uniform, I thought him the finest specimen of manhood my eyes had ever beheld, and the most to be envied. The most memorable thing about Sam Grant to his West Point classmates was how good he was on horseback, which he demonstrated by setting an academy high jump record on a horse that none of the other cadets were even willing to ride. So with that in mind, he requested, and hoped, that after graduation he would be assigned to the cavalry. But cavalry was a prestigious assignment, uh, tough to get if you were in the bottom half of your class. So he was disappointed to learn of his appointment as a second lieutenant in the 4th Infantry. There was, though, a silver lining. He would be stationed at Jefferson Barracks in Missouri, near St. Louis, close to the home of his former roommate and good friend Fred Dent, whose family lived in St. Louis. Grant would be able to break the monotony of peacetime military life with frequent visits to the Dent family home. And during those many visits, he fell in love with Fred's younger sister, Julia, and before long, she reciprocated. He proposed, and she conditionally accepted the condition being her father's approval. Grant had won over Mrs. Dent, but Julia's father was still on the fence, unsure of whether Julia was suited to life as a military wife. So another similarity between Grant and his future nemesis, Robert E. Lee, was that they both had fathers-in-law who initially withheld their blessings. But before a decision could be reached, the young love was interrupted in 1845 by international politics of all things. As it turns out, Mexico took issue with the American annexation of Texas, which the Mexican government maintained was Mexican territory, notwithstanding Texas' statements to the contrary. And so the 4th Infantry, and Grant along with it, was deployed to West Louisiana and then to Corpus Christi, Texas, prepared to respond to any movements by the Mexican army into Texas. The 4th was involved in some skirmishing near the Rio Grande at Matamoros and Rezaca de la Palma in the summer of 1846. Referring to the latter, uh, Sam Grant wrote to Julia, quote, There is no great sport in having bullets flying about one in every direction, but I find they have less horror when among them than when in anticipation, unquote. So it wasn't the battle itself, uh, but the expectation that made Grant nervous. The fighting along the Rio Grande led to a congressional war authorization at President Polk's request. Grant would have the opportunity to serve under both of the American generals who would obtain hero status during the war, and that would be Winfield Scott and Zachary Taylor. On Taylor, Grant wrote, quote, General Taylor never made any great show or parade, whether of uniform or retinue. In dress, he was probably too plain, rarely wearing anything in the field to indicate his rank, 
or even that he was an officer. But he was known to every soldier in this army and was respected by all. General Taylor was not an officer to trouble the administration with his demands, but was inclined to do the best he could with the means given him. No soldier could face either danger or responsibility more calmly than he. These are qualities more rarely found than genius or physical courage. Unquote. Now, just by comparison, uh, James McPherson writes of Grant during the Civil War, quote, Unlike so many other commanders, Grant rarely clamored for reinforcements, rarely complained, rarely quarreled with associates, but went ahead and did the job with the resources at hand, unquote. So McPherson's description of Grant obviously sounds quite a bit like Grant's description of Taylor. Grant would be named quartermaster of his regiment, which in Mexico meant dealing with pack mules. About the mules, he wrote, quote, I am not aware of having ever used a profane expletive in my life, but I would have the charity to excuse those who may have done so if they were in charge of a train of Mexican pack mules at the time, unquote. Because he was quartermaster, Grant was ordered to stay at camp with the reserves as Taylor's army prepared for the attack on Monterey. Grant intended to comply, but curiosity got the better of him. And so he moved forward to observe, uh, eventually ending up joining in an infantry charge. Throughout the campaign, Grant would lobby to be relieved of his position as quartermaster so that he could see more combat action. His commanding officer responded by telling him that quartermaster was, quote, an assigned duty and not an office that can be resigned, unquote. However, as little as he liked it, Grant's experience as quartermaster unquestionably aided him in the Civil War, where managing logistics was a crucial part of a commander's job. As eager as Grant was for combat, he really wasn't much of a fan of the politics behind the war. Um, in his memoirs, he would write that he, quote, regards the Mexican War as one of the most unjust ever waged by a stronger against a weaker nation. It was an example of a republic following the bad example of European monarchies in not considering justice in their desire to acquire additional territories, unquote. Now, because of some Washington politics, uh, specifically the growing fear that General Taylor was becoming a threatening candidate for president, Taylor was known to be a Whig, while President Polk was a Democrat, Grant's regiment was reassigned to Winfield Scott, who we discussed quite a bit in our Lee episode. Grant is complimentary of both generals, but you can see where he is much more of a fan of Taylor than Scott. Taylor was more relaxed and informal, while Scott was a, a by-the-book kind of guy, uh, insisting on strict protocol. In terms of his future career development, uh, Grant probably benefited from being exposed to both, but you can certainly see where Taylor was the greater influence. While with Scott, Grant participated in the landing at Veracruz, then the victory at Buena Vista, uh, both of which Lee was also involved in. But much to his disappointment, Sam Grant missed out on the action at Cerro Gordo, of which he wrote, My heart was sad at the fate that held me from sharing in that brave and brilliant assault. Unquote. Grant did get in on the action at Molino del Rey, where Scott had underestimated the size of the defending force. At that battle, Grant and some of his group were able to construct an improvised ladder to access the roof and capture several Mexican officers. Then at Chapultepec, uh, the castle protecting Mexico City, Grant's unit was assigned to storm one of the castle gates. They managed to capture an artillery piece through a flanking move, and then a church overlooking the gate uh, from which to fire said artillery piece. A priest answered when Grant knocked on the door of the church, and was initially reluctant to allow access. Grant describes the incident, quote, 
When I knocked for admission, a priest came to the door, who, while extremely polite, declined to admit us. With the little Spanish then at my command, I explained to him that he might save the property by opening the door, and he certainly would save himself from becoming a prisoner, for a time at least, and besides, I intended to go in whether he consented or not. Unquote. The door was opened. Grant took his howitzer to the belfry and shelled the gate. His actions at Chapultepec earned Grant the praise of both his regiment and division commanders. There goes a man of fire, one of his superior officers said, noting Grant's battlefield bravery. The storming of Mexico City after Chapultepec brought an end to the war and to Grant's time in Mexico. After the war, he requested and received a leave of absence, which allowed him to visit his family in Ohio and then head back to Missouri, uh, where he married Julia, who he had written to frequently during the war. Grant's many letters to Julia show that he truly loved and was devoted to his wife. And she loved him back and would stick with him through some pretty tough times ahead, even when she had quite a few people advising her to kick him to the curb. They spent a couple uneventful newlywed years stationed in Detroit, the most notable occurrence being the birth of their first son in 1850, Frederick Dent Grant, who went by Fred. But then Grant was transferred to California, and Julia and young Fred had to stay behind. His unit had to make the trip by boat, sailing the Atlantic to Panama, crossing the Isthmus by land in the days before the canal, and then sailing the Pacific to Fort Humboldt near Eureka. They were delayed in Panama due to some corruption with the contractor who was supposed to supply the mules to get the men from one ocean to the other. Grant ended up having to pay twice the contract rate for the mules, but by that time the tropical exposure during the rainy season had led to one-seventh of the men dying from cholera. While out west, Grant had the opportunity to travel to Oregon to assist with George McClellan's surveying team that was working on a northern route for the Transcontinental Railroad. Grant liked to travel and see new places, but it didn't make up for being away from Julia, who was still back east with Fred and their second son, who went by Ulysses, like his dad. The mail home was slow, delayed up to three months, and Grant was terrified that Julia and the boys might start to forget about him. He seems to have been suffering from depression at the time, possibly aggravated by seasonal affective disorder. And like many lonely, depressed people uh, throughout the history of the world— and into modern times, Grant found some temporary solace in a bottle. Drinking was not uncommon at the fort. Pretty much every soldier there would partake. But Grant didn't hold his liquor well. And it was pretty clear to everyone when he had been drinking because he showed all the physical manifestations, obviously. So when his commanding officer caught him drunk at the pay table in early 1854, he was faced with the choice between either offering his resignation from the army or facing a court-martial. He chose the former. So a somewhat disgraced Ulysses S. Grant made the long trip back east by boat, short on the cash that he would need to get back to Julia in Missouri. While in New York, he called on an old friend from West Point by the name of Simon Bolivar Buckner. Remember that name. Buckner did Grant a solid, vouching for him with the owner of the hotel that Grant had been staying at, and lending him enough money to survive until Jesse could send money for Ulysses to pay the hotel owner what was owed and get home. These were the tough times for Ulysses S. Grant. When you hear people talk about how Grant's life is inspiring because he went from being uh, down on his luck and broke to being president of the United States, this is the time they're talking about. And it really is amazing how quickly he turned this around once the war started. 
His father, Jesse, suggested that he join his brothers in the leather business they had started in Illinois, but that would necessarily involve leaving Julia and the boys again. He'd had enough of that. He gave farming a try on some land owned by Julia's family, but a lack of credit held him back. Even Jesse declined to give him a $500 loan at 5% interest uh, that he needed. A slave owned by Julia's family, uh, the one by the name Mary Robinson, said of Grant's farming days, quote, I have seen many farmers, but I never saw one that worked harder than Mr. Grant, unquote. But his hard work just wasn't enough. He attempted to hire a field hand, but he couldn't find anybody to work for what he could afford to pay. And so he did what people living in Missouri in the 1850s did when they needed help with manual labor. He purchased a slave. Grant, like Lee, was not an abolitionist, but he had indicated previously that he didn't view slavery favorably. Yet he did briefly become a slave owner, though it should be noted that he was pretty obviously uncomfortable with the situation and freed the man rather than selling him upon giving up his farming enterprise. Grant then tried working in real estate for a little while with Julia's cousin, but that didn't go anywhere either. Louisa Boggs, who was the cousin's wife, commented on Grant's state of affairs at the time, quote, It was a hard situation for him. He was a northern man married to a southern slave-owning family. Colonel Dent, that's Julia's father, openly despised him. All the family spoke of poor Julia when they spoke of Mrs. Grant. Everybody thought Captain Grant a poor match of Miss Dent, unquote. Grant wasn't a businessman, and he couldn't manage to find any sort of steady employment. His only real training was in the military. Now, his family wasn't in danger of starving, but they certainly did not have any money for any luxuries. It must have really hurt Grant's pride the extent that they had to rely on Julia's family to support the kids. And so he didn't really have much choice but to go to his brothers and father, hat in hand, and ask for a job in the leather business in Galena, Illinois. They took him on as an employee, though he hoped to work his way up to partnership eventually. Uh, This time he would bring his family along, and things started looking up, though Grant never really did enjoy that type of work. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. By this point, it was 1860, and Grant was 38 years old. There was a contentious presidential campaign going on that year that almost makes modern politics look mild by comparison. Grant had been a lifelong Democrat, and he initially supported Stephen Douglas until he realized that Douglas could not win. So he decided to support the other Illinois politician who was running. You know, that tall guy with the top hat, fond of telling stories? Southerners were already threatening to secede if Lincoln was elected. And sure enough, on December 8th, The South Carolina legislature voted to say, screw you guys, I'm going home to Washington. President Buchanan set a new standard in fence-sitting by declaring that secession was illegal, but the president lacked the authority to do anything about it. Like Lee, Grant viewed the crisis as having been caused by just a few quarrelsome politicians 
rather than by an unfixable animosity between the northern and southern populations. He remarked, It does seem as if just a few men have produced all the present difficulty. So the way Grant saw it, the founding fathers may have thought that states had a right to secede, but they couldn't have foreseen how times would change. Grant noted, quote, It is preposterous that the people of one generation can lay down the best and only rule of government for all who are to come after them. The fathers would have been the first to declare that their prerogatives were not irrevocable, unquote. Grant did agree that oppressed people have the right to revolt, but he didn't think Southerners were actually oppressed. Not yet, anyway. And besides, if the secessionists wanted to win their independence, they should have to do it the old-fashioned way. Pay the iron price for liberty. Then Fort Sumter happened, and next came Lincoln's call for volunteers. Galena, Illinois, uh, the town where the Grant family leather business was located, raised a company, and Grant was asked to be its captain due to his military experience. But he declined. He'd be glad to help train the men, no problem. But he had seen the difference between regulars and volunteers in Mexico, and he wanted to be with the pros. He wrote to the adjutant general in Washington in May 1861, I feel myself competent to command a regiment, but never received a response to the letter. He then tried to call on McClellan in Cincinnati, but Little Mac big-timed him. He was too busy to meet with Grant. And up to a point, you can kind of understand the tepid reception that Grant's offer received from the brass. As Shelby Foote describes him just prior to the war, Grant was, quote, a confirmed failure with a wife out of a Missouri slave-owning family and two small children, unquote. Not exactly the description they were looking for. So when he returned to Illinois, he accepted the governor's offer to take command of a volunteer regiment as its colonel. Upon taking command, Grant focused on training, turning the undisciplined militia into soldiers. And the men were glad for it. As brief as everyone believed the war was going to be, the volunteers wanted to be prepared, and they wanted to be led by someone who knew what he was doing. Before long, the regiment had become officially part of the Federal Army, and they were sent to Missouri to deal with a group of about 1,200 raiders led by a man by the name of Tom Harris. Grant was anxious and suffering headaches as the regiment approached Harris's camp. He wrote, quote, My heart kept getting higher and higher until it felt to me as though it were in my throat. I would have given anything then to have been back in Illinois, but he had not the moral courage to halt and consider what to do, unquote. But when his regiment approached the secessionist camp, they found Harris and his men had already fled. As little significance as that event had on the overall war, it made an important impression on Grant. From that event to the close of the war, I never experienced trepidation upon confronting an enemy, though I always felt more or less anxiety. I never forgot that he had as much reason to fear my forces as I had his. Shelby Foote believes that Grant showed one of his best qualities here. Something rare in that or any war, a man who could actually learn from experience, unquote. As the army continued to grow during 1861, it needed more officers, and specifically more generals. April 1861 saw Grant promoted to brigadier and given command over 4,000 men. The promotion, which, unlike future promotions, Grant hadn't really done anything to earn, was in part a result of politics. Illinois Representative Elihu Washburn, 
who came to be a close friend of Grant's as their careers progressed, secured the promotion for Grant for not much more reason than that he thought his district should have a brigadier. Jesse Grant, the practical man that he was, upon learning of his son's promotion, offered some solid advice. Quote, Careful, Ulyss. You're a general now. It's a good job. Don't lose it. Unquote. Grant was headquartered in Cairo, Illinois, vying for control over the junction of the Ohio and Tennessee rivers with a group of Confederates 20 miles away in Columbus, Kentucky. He demonstrated what would come to be one of his defining characteristics by taking decisive action in sealing the town of Paducah, Kentucky, following Confederate General Leonidas Polk's taking Columbus. Most of the locals were flying rebel flags, but Grant issued a statement saying that he was there to protect them from the rebel aggression. After all, Polk had invaded Kentucky first. Any peaceful citizens would be left alone, regardless of their politics. Grant's spin paid off politically. Shortly thereafter, the Kentucky legislature, which had previously been straddling the fence, declared firmly for the Union, though the governor and Senator John Breckinridge sided with the South. Kentucky was perhaps the most deeply divided state of the war, with brothers literally fighting each other in battle on a regular basis. Mary Lincoln, a wife of the rail splitter himself, and a native Kentuckian, had four brothers fight for the Confederacy, two of whom would be killed in action. Grant started to earn his reputation as a hard-fighting general at Belmont, Missouri. General John C. Fremont, who commanded the Union troops west of the Mississippi, was trying to draw the Confederate forces in Missouri into battle. He assigned Grant to prevent any rebel reinforcements from arriving from across the Mississippi, in aid of Confederate General Sterling Price. To do that, Grant was instructed to make some feints at the rebels in Columbus, commanded by Polk. Grant, of course, would make the necessary demonstration, though he remarked to Fremont, if it were discretionary with me, with a little addition to my present force, I would be in Columbus. Fremont didn't reply. Then, on November 3rd of 1861, Fremont was relieved of command uh, due to political differences and really borderline insubordination with Lincoln. On that same day, Grant would send a contingent south for the purpose of destroying a group of Missouri rebels under Jeff Thompson. Three days later, Grant learned that Polk had sent a rebel column south from Columbus to attack the contingent that Grant had dispatched. Now, as it turns out, Grant was receiving bad intelligence. Not only had Polk not sent any men after the men Grant had dispatched, but he had no intention of sending reinforcements to Sterling Price either. Nevertheless, Grant decided that uh, rather than limiting himself to feints, he would lead a little more than 3,000 men in a surprise attack on the rebel camp in Belmont. They'd travel by boat, land around three miles north of the camp, and march south to attack from land while supported from the river by gunboats. Belmont was occupied by only one infantry regiment and one artillery battery. But when Polk learned of Grant's attack, he sent four more regiments to reinforce the camp. Grant met the Confederate force head-on, and after a couple hours of fighting, the rebels panicked and beat a hasty retreat. But rather than pursue, Grant's inexperienced men started to celebrate and to loot the camp. Because the rebels had retreated, the Confederate artillery commanding the bluffs overlooking the camp could now open fire, no longer concerned with hitting their own men. Add to this the arrival of additional Southern reinforcements, and now Grant, with his 3,000 men, was facing 5,000 rebels positioned between the Union force and its transport ships. 
It really could have been a disaster. Some of the Union officers wanted to surrender, but Grant didn't panic. He would later observe, we had cut our way in and could cut our way out just as well. And they did just that, fighting their way back to the boats with Grant leading the way, running up and down the lines to rally the men, even after having a horse shot out from under him. He found another horse and convinced it to slide down a muddy bank and walk up a plank onto the last boat. As Grant made his escape, Polk, who had traveled down from Columbus to observe the fighting, saw Grant's narrow escape and reportedly commented to some nearby infantrymen, There is a Yankee. You may try your marksmanship on him if you wish. Fortunately for Grant, and for the Union cause, there was no one up to the task. So Grant was the last one back on board the boats, and they took some heavy fire as they left. They had sustained about 600 casualties, but the northern press, looking for good news to report after Bull Run, could spin what was more or less a draw into a victory. And so they did. According to the Chicago Tribune, quote, General Grant was everywhere in the thickest of the fight and performed wonderful deeds of bravery. The men never tire of lauding his gallantry, unquote. He hadn't made any real tactical gain, but he had demonstrated that he was not afraid to take action and that he could stay calm when the bullets were flying. He had also erased any lingering doubts in his men's mind. They knew the whole expedition was meant to aid the men that Grant had sent south into Missouri, uh, even though they didn't really need any help at all. So Grant's men had learned that if they found themselves in the future in a similar bind, Grant would look after them too even if that meant leading the fighting from the front himself. By that point, Fremont had been replaced in command out west by General Henry Halleck, old brains. Grant visited Halleck in person at his St. Louis headquarters with a plan to capture the Confederate forts Henry and Donelson on the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers through a combined Army-Freshwater Navy operation. Grant later remembered the meeting, quote, I was received with such little cordiality that I perhaps stated the object of my visit with less clearness than I might have done. And I had not uttered many sentences before I was cut short, as if my plan was preposterous. Unquote. Halleck was the type of guy who didn't like an idea unless it's his own, and was always wary of subordinates getting too much credit. And so he initially rejected the idea. But Grant wasn't the type to be easily discouraged and followed up the meeting with a telegram from his Cairo, Illinois base. Grant was also able to convince Andrew Foote, the commander of the Navy on the Ohio and Mississippi rivers, to wire Halleck in support of the plan. And when Halleck learned that PGT Beauregard was leaving Virginia, headed to Kentucky with 15 divisions, which was also bad intelligence, Halleck approved the movement against Fort Henry. He responded to Grant's message, quote, Make your preparations to take and hold Fort Henry. I will send you written instructions by mail, unquote. The written instructions followed with additional information about the fort's defenses and a directive well-suited to a general like Grant. You will move with the least delay possible. By February 3rd, Grant advised Halleck that the operation would start the next morning, with his men supported by four ironclad gunboats, each 175 feet long and equipped with 13 guns, along with three wooden boats and nine transports. Grant and Foote saw Fort Henry as the weak spot in the Confederate western defenses, which were being led by Albert Sidney Johnston. Now, for a fort, Fort Henry, which was located in Tennessee, wasn't in a particularly strong location. 
It's set on a low riverbank surrounded by hills, and when the river rose, some of its guns were submerged and became inoperable. At the time of Grant's attack, the fort would have only nine functional artillery pieces, and only two of those were capable of damaging an ironclad. The fort itself was manned by 3,400 poorly armed troops. Some even carried flintlock muskets. The fort's commander, by the name of Lloyd Tillman, had sent a request for reinforcements, but he was not answered. When Tillman saw the force that Grant would bring against him, and had resigned himself that no additional men would be forthcoming, he opted to evacuate the bulk of the fort's garrison to the more defensible Fort Donelson, which was about 12 miles away on the Cumberland River. This left only two officers and 54 men behind to man the guns, and to delay Grant during the escape. To his credit, Tillman stayed behind, eventually serving as a replacement gunner during the fighting. Grant's plan to take the fort was to have a division take the high ground commanding the fort on the west bank of the river, while the remainder of his force attacked the fort itself from the east. Once the western heights were occupied, artillery could be set up to bombard the fort. The Confederates had started constructing gun emplacements on the heights, but they remained incomplete. The transport ships landed Grant and his 15,000 men a few miles below the fort on February 5th, and the attack began February 6th, uh, 1862. The freshwater gunboats exchanged artillery fire with the fort's guns while the army approached the fort from the land. Despite the long odds, the skeleton crew left in the fort put up a decent fight. The Union flagship took 32 hits but remained in the fight, uh, minus two of its guns, and the Essex was the lone casualty among the gunboats. It was left immobilized and drifting downstream after taking a direct hit to the boiler. The fort surrendered after about two hours of fighting. The victory cost the northern force one ironclad gunboat, uh, but gained them effective control of the Tennessee River, and Grant had another notch on his pistol. He didn't waste any time before letting Halleck know about the victory, or about his plans to keep moving forward. The wire Grant sent to Halleck read, Fort Henry is ours. I shall take and destroy Fort Donelson on the 8th and return to Fort Henry. When a newspaper reporter embedded with Grant's army told Grant that he'd be leaving for New York to file his story about the capture of Fort Henry, Grant confidently suggested, You had better wait a day or two. I'm going over to capture Fort Donelson tomorrow. As it turns out, Albert Sidney Johnston essentially agreed with Grant's views on the situation. After the surrender of Fort Henry, Johnston had sent a message to Richmond informing Jefferson Davis that Donelson was not long tenable. He held a council of war with his highest-ranking generals, including Beauregard, and they determined to withdraw the bulk of the army uh, rather than fight an all-out battle to save the fort. Only the fort's garrison would be left to defend it. But that didn't mean taking Fort Donelson would be easy. The fort sat on top of a hundred-foot bluff on the western bank of a bend in the Cumberland River, with dozens of heavy guns ready to fire upon any boats approaching from the river. The gun batteries set in the face of the bluff, protected by earthworks and sandbags. The right flank of the fort was protected by a creek running into the river, and rifle pits built into a ridge running southeast, parallel to the river bend, protected the most likely approach. The fort held 17,500 men, organized into 28 regiments and commanded by John Floyd, a former United States Secretary of War uh, who was under a criminal indictment in the North for transferring arms south while he still served in President Buchanan's cabinet. Second in command was Gideon Pillow, with whom Grant had served in Mexico, though Grant had not been impressed with Pillow's soldiering there 
and wouldn't be at Fort Donelson either. Grant's attack was delayed by a combination of high water and damage to the gunboats. Despite their effectiveness at Fort Henry, the boats had taken enough damage to require repairs before engaging again. Halleck was also sending 10,000 reinforcements, so Grant figured that that was enough men to be worth waiting around a little bit. On February 11th, Grant called an officer's meeting uh, aboard a boat coincidentally known as the New Uncle Sam, which was serving as his floating headquarters. He told his officers that the attack would begin the next day, but, quote, the force of the enemy being so variously reported, the necessary orders will be given in the field, unquote. That is, they would be improvising. The advance began on the 12th. During the 10-mile march in unseasonably warm weather, some of the men lightened their loads by discarding their heavy wool overcoats and blankets. They arrived in the afternoon, approaching the rifle pits. But the gunboat support wasn't there yet, so the assault was pushed back. On the 13th, Brigadier General John McClernand ordered two ill-advised advances in the face of the rebels' protected positions. McClernand was an Illinois lawyer and politician, a former House member who saw military service as a means of political advancement. At Belmont, he had celebrated the initial success with a victory speech to his men instead of pursuing the routed Confederates. Grant wasn't overly fond of the politicians-turned-generals that filled out the Union Officer Corps, particularly early in the war, and especially when they ordered costly advances that wasted soldiers' lives unnecessarily. Though, of course, uh, time would tell that Grant wasn't immune to that transgression either. Only one gunboat had arrived thus far the Carondelet, and she wasn't able to do much damage on her own. So, unable to make any progress, Grant decided to call it a day and wait for the rest of the flotilla to arrive. He also called in the rest of his army, 2,500 men still at Fort Henry under Lew Wallace, that would be able to get in on tomorrow's Valentine's Day action. That night, the weather changed. Instead of the southern warmth that had convinced some of the men to ditch their cold-weather gear, they were exposed to sleet and snow, and temperatures as cold as 12 degrees Fahrenheit. Some of the men who had been wounded in McClernand's advance even froze to death. When the next morning finally came, so did the fleet. Four ironclads and two wooden gunboats tasked with taking out Fort Donaldson's guns. When Floyd saw the approaching flotilla, he lost hope. The fort cannot hold out 20 minutes. And a relatively unknown at the time cavalry officer, who would end up being one of the most effective and feared commanders of the war on either side, by the name of Nathan Bedford Forrest, upon witnessing the naval firepower bearing down on the fort, exclaimed to a nearby clergyman, Parson, for God's sake, pray. Nothing but God Almighty can save that fort. But the Valentine's Day fighting didn't go quite so well as Fort Henry. The fleet drew too close to the fort's guns so that it took heavy fire while overshooting the rebel batteries. Two of the ironclads were disabled, and the rest were forced to retreat after a little over an hour's fighting. Fort Donaldson hadn't lost a single man or a single gun. Still, Grant remained confident, wiring Halleck, I feel great confidence in ultimately reducing the place. Yet, despite getting the better of the naval engagement on the 14th, the commanders of the rebel fort still didn't like their chances of repelling Grant's attack, and so they decided to attempt a dawn breakout on February 15th, hoping to evacuate Donaldson and move to Nashville to assist with that city's defense. A winter storm during the night 
helped mask the sound of the preparations, and so when the attack came on the Union right, it caught Grant flat-footed. By his own admission, he had not expected any fighting that day unless he was the instigator. So when the attack came, Grant was off-site, visiting with Foote, and hadn't designated a second in command. Even more, he had given strict orders for no troop movements while he was gone, which prevented troops on one side of the line from coming to the aid of the troops being attacked on the other. The breakout was initially successful. The Union right was pushed back almost a full mile, nearly turning the flank. After three hours of fighting, the rebels had opened up the road to Nashville. But despite the apparent success, Floyd and Pillow decided that their men were in too rough of shape to complete the escape and so they instead opted to retreat back into the fort. Grant calmly smoked his cigar and evaluated the situation, hurrying back to the army after learning of the fighting during his meeting with Foote. He observed, Some of our men are pretty badly demoralized, but the enemy must be more so, for he has attempted to force his way out, but has fallen back. The one who attacks first now will be victorious, and the enemy will have to be in a hurry if he gets ahead of me. Grant rallied his men, and they were able to recover their lines. The enemy is trying to escape, and he must not be permitted to do so, Grant stated as he ordered an attack on the opposite side on the rebel right, which had been weakened to position troops on the left for the morning's advance. The counterattack was a success, leaving Union artillery positioned on the ridge commanding the fort. Having been thwarted in their breakout, and having concluded that the fort could not be saved, the rebel officers opted for surrender. All but Forrest, that is. He said, I did not come here for the purpose of surrendering my command, and was granted permission to attempt an escape, as long as he left before negotiations for the fort's surrenders commenced. Floyd and Pillow were politicians. They couldn't risk losing face by handing over the fort personally, and Floyd, in all likelihood, would be headed to the penitentiary if captured, due to his outstanding indictment. So they did the only honorable thing— and up an R-U-N-O-F-T in the middle of the night, leaving the fort in the hands of the previously third in command. And that officer's name? You guessed it, Simon Bolivar Buckner. Now, if you haven't been taking notes, Buckner was Grant's friend from West Point who had vouched for him and lent him money in New York when he was trying to get home after he had resigned from the Army. And as you might have guessed, neither Buckner nor Grant were particularly impressed by Floyd and Pillow's profile and courage. Prior to the fighting, Pillow had said, I will never surrender the position, and with God's help, I mean to maintain it. But when the going got tough, Pillow got going right on down the road. So you know what Buckner's thinking at this point, right? I stuck my neck out for old Sam Grant when he was on a losing streak. He should return the favor now, right? So, Buckner requests a ceasefire to negotiate terms. Uh, This is after Floyd and Pillow have left and taken many of the men defending the fort with them. Buckner doesn't have a chance of defending successfully at this point. So, he wrote to Grant, quote, In consideration of all the circumstances governing the present situation of affairs at this station, I propose to the commanding officer of the federal forces the appointment of commissioners to agree upon the terms of capitulation of the forces and fort under my command. And in that view, suggest an armistice until 12 o'clock today. Very respectfully, your obedient servant. Unquote. To Buckner's note, Grant sent what has become a famous response. Quote, no terms except an unconditional and immediate surrender can be accepted. I propose to move immediately upon your works. I am, sir, very respectfully your obedient servant, U.S. Grant, Brigadier General. Unquote. So, yeah, I know we were buds and all. 
but this is war, dude. I'm not messing around. Of course, by that point, Buckner had no choice but to surrender. Though, in his response, he didn't neglect to point out to Grant what he described as ungenerous and unchivalrous terms. Grant would recall that the two spoke about the incident afterwards. According to Grant's recollection, quote, He said to me that if he had been in command, I would not have got up to Fort Donaldson as easily as I did. I told him that if he had been in command, I should not have tried it the way I did, unquote. Uh, Grant did, and you don't really know if this was meant genuinely or uh, as a little bit more of a dig, he did offer to lend Buckner any money that he needed during his time as a prisoner. So that was nice of him. The surrender itself was much less formal than most, and many of the 12,000 rebel soldiers, noticing how laxly they were being guarded, slipped away into the woods to fight another day. Uh, Forrest himself had little difficulty in getting out. He'd later say that, quote, not a gun was fired at us, not an enemy was seen or heard, unquote. But Grant wasn't concerned about this. He wasn't really in the business of housing and feeding prisoners. His take on it was, quote, it is much less job to take them than to keep them. Even Pillow's escape didn't phase Grant. He commented to Buckner, if I had captured him, I would have turned him loose. I would rather have him in command of you fellows than as a prisoner. The capture of Forts Henry and Donaldson was significant, much more so than Belmont. Grant's confidence was growing, and soon after, he was promoted to Major General. And he had really started to make a name for himself in the press, which was now referring to him as Unconditional Surrender Grant, and hailing him as the new hero of the North. Newspaper writers were dissecting everything from his physical features to the way he wore his hat, to how he sat on a horse, which incidentally was... He sits firmly in the saddle and looks straight ahead, as if only intent on getting to some particular point. One story described him as, quote, a concentration of all that is American. He talks bad grammar, but talks it naturally, as much as to say, I was so brought up, and if I try fine phrases, I shall only appear silly, unquote. So politics was as much of a thing in the army as in Washington. And so Halleck tried to take credit for the victories. Rumors that Grant was drinking heavily, in all likelihood exaggerated and spread by officers like Halleck, who were threatened by Grant's rise, began circulating through the army and in Washington. But Lincoln was pretty shrewd when it came to that sort of intrigue, and Grant had caught the president's eye. Halleck even tried to make Grant irrelevant by giving the command of the Army of the Tennessee to a subordinate and assigning Grant to garrison duty. At one point, he threatened to place Grant under arrest for failure to report his movements. And while it was true that Halleck hadn't received Grant's reports, that was only because a spy in the telegraph office was holding them back. In response, Grant offered his resignation, uh, but there was no way Halleck could get Grant that way. The press would have destroyed him for it. Grant would learn to play the army politics game soon enough, but only because he had to. Like Lincoln, Grant's top priority was fighting, and winning the war. They were both beginning to see that Grant knew how to fight and to win. Many Union generals were not really fighting at all, or fighting not to lose. But Grant didn't have a prevent defense in his playbook. He wasn't burdened with concerns about his political career after the war, or his political situation in the army. Grant was coming around to the line of thinking advocated by Sherman, that the best way to win the war quickly was to go hard, turn it into a brawl, and break the Southern spirit of resistance. Uh, while in Mexico, he had written to Julia, quote, if we have to fight, I would like to do it all at once and then make friends. 
unquote. And that seems to sum up the way he viewed the present rebellion. Another result of the fall of Donaldson and Henry was that it led in part to General Albert Sidney Johnston's continued withdrawal south and east into northern Mississippi and Tennessee, where he was consolidating most of the Confederate Western forces. Johnston found his army split in two with a Union army in between. Nashville would have to be evacuated and became the first Confederate capital to fall into Union hands. Kentucky and the bulk of Tennessee and all the resources that came with them came under Union control. The New York Tribune announced, quote, Every blow tells fearfully against the rebellion. The rebels themselves are panic-stricken or despondent. It now requires no very far-reaching profit to predict the end of the struggle, unquote. The effects of Donaldson and Henry reverberated as far off as London, where Confederate emissary James Mason noted, The late reverses at Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson have an unfortunate effect upon the minds of our friends here. Grant wanted to keep the pressure on Johnston. It really wasn't his style to wait around. So he followed in pursuit of the Confederate retreat down the Tennessee River, camping on the river's west bank at a spot known as Pittsburgh Landing. After the retreat, Johnston was getting pressure from Richmond to stop pulling back. And so he decided it was time to give battle. In fact, he'd give Grant all that he could handle. Some of the fiercest fighting of the war, and the bloodiest battle in American history when it was fought nearby a small log church in southwestern Tennessee called Shiloh. And that will bring a close to part one of our portrait of Ulysses S. Grant. We hope you'll join us soon for part two, where we'll look at the fierce fighting at Shiloh and see Grant continue his rise to national prominence by capturing Vicksburg and saving a Union army at Chattanooga, Tennessee. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you would like to contact Portraits of Blue and Gray, you can reach us by email at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com. Questions and comments are welcome from Yankees and Secesh alike. And remember, we always spell gray the old-fashioned way, G-R-E-Y. Visit the show's webpage at portraitsofblueandgray.podbeam.com. If you enjoyed the show and want to contribute financially, click on the Become a Patron badge at the top of the main page to visit our crowdfunding page. Or visit that page directly at patreon.podbeam.com slash blueandgray. All contributors are wholeheartedly appreciated and will be thanked by name in an upcoming episode, unless you ask us not to. Please rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever other app you used to find us. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.